Kings Insider Podcast on CSNCalifornia.com. Introducing your host, Sacramento Kings Insider, James Ham. Welcome to the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. I am James Ham. Joining me, one of my favorite guests all time, one of my favorite people to be around at the arena, Mr. Jerry Reynolds. Jerry, how are you doing this morning? Well, James, I'm uh, doing great. You know, looking forward to the game tonight and got my yard mowed, so I'm ready to go. Wow, you you went out and braved the swampy the swampy mud to mow the lawn this morning. That's that's bold, Jerry. Well, I knew I better because you know we leave tomorrow or fairly early, and so for a long trip, so I didn't want to have to leave Mrs. Reynolds with a with a major mowing thing since we we do mow our own yard. <laughs> it reminds me of that old uh, billboard, you know, if you'll stay, we'll mow your... Oh, no, that was... The, it was the Maloof. They were saying... The Maloof telling Chris, Chris Weber, yeah, if you stay, we'll we'll mow your yard or something like that. I, I would have liked to have seen that since uh, he did stay. I don't know that they did. Maybe they could have mowed your yard just for all the, the heartache and pain they put you through. Well, they owed me a lot more than that, I think, but uh, <laughs> that would have been a start. <laughs> All right, so Jerry, we're in a new building. It's incredible. Uh, I I am personally so happy to see that you and Grant and Gary all made it to the new building. Uh, I, I think there was a time there where we didn't think that uh, that, that was going to happen, that this team was going to move on and, and go find somewhere else to live. And uh, how excited are you to be part of it and, and wearing a tux on opening night and just the pageantry of a new building in Sacramento. Well, it's really exciting. No question about it. As you said, uh, you know, there was a few years ago, it just didn't look like uh, there was going to be a possibility of the Sacramento Kings being in existence. And I think that would have been terribly sad. Uh, not, not just me uh, personally, but, you know, just the, uh, had it, the team moved, it would have taken a different name and identity and, and, you know, and all the fine players and people that have played here and coaches. And then of course the fans, it just, it would just been forgotten. And I, I just thought that was, would be terrible. I mean, uh, you know, just on my end, I had no intentions, even if offered a job to go with the team, I certainly wouldn't have, but, but still it, uh, it's just great. It all worked out, and and that's the big thing, you know. Beautiful, beautiful, fabulous arena, and you know, I think the vision of uh, Vivek Ranadive and 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 the ownership group, as well, and of course the tremendous assistance uh, they got from uh, former Commissioner uh, David Stern and the Mayor Kevin Johnson. I mean, just a remarkable, remarkable story. Yeah, isn't it? It's one of the the great come from behind stories of all time, and you know, I, I keep telling people. The fans, I think the fans understand that the building is spectacular, but maybe more importantly, the lease that comes with the building is ironclad, and it's thirty or thirty-five years. The Kings are here; they're they're not they're not going anywhere, and they probably will never go anywhere. And I think that's one of the biggest reliefs that you can take away from this: that 
you know, it, it, the building is cool, but what it means is Sacramento Kings basketball in the capital of California for a long time, at least till 2050, I think is it, the least, the least runs through then. Yeah. I was, I was telling somebody the other night, I've, it's the third building that I've been a part of and opened up and I don't anticipate opening up a fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the odds are strongly against anything like that. So, uh, but, but, but really is the, the important point is now that's what I thought about, you know, I'd mentioned to Joe Davidson and the B that I thought it was maybe the second most important day in the history of Sacramento sports uh, next to the original opening of the little building. And which at that time just meant that you had a, a, a major league sports franchise here in Sacramento, you know, which was, I don't think you can top that. Uh, but this really meant that, that the major league sports franchise, the Sacramento Kings would remain in Sacramento basically uh, forever. And also, in a, in a class building and, and an opportunity to totally redevelop uh, downtown, which certainly needs it. You know, Jerry, the one thing I also like being around the team as much as we are is that so many of the old players have been around so much. I mean, of course, Vlade and Peja are in the front office. Doug is on TV. Bobby's on radio. Uh, Chris Weber showed up for the opener, which was a shock because he's like pinning that guy down it, it isn't an easy isn't <laughs> no an easy almost thing. impossible <laughs> yeah and you got Brad Miller and Mike Bibby around the team a bunch how nice is it for you to see the golden age of Kings even Mitch Richmond was at the opener from what I hear you know you could see the golden age of Kings like here to support what's happening and sort of trying to get that old town that old time vibe going again well, I, I think it, it, you know it's kind of always been that, that way. I think a lot of times the media, nationally at least, never understood that that the players that played here really liked it here. Always did. Uh, you know the 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 idea of this was uh, the players really didn't want to be in Sacramento or playing for the Kings has always been erroneous. So most players really enjoyed their time here, and you have a lot of old time players that still live here as well you know the Harold Presleys and the Jimmy Lesses the LaSalle Thompsons and, and I mean it's it, it's uh it is a great place to live and work and and all and and I think uh you know players players around the league not just the ones here understand that I, I always said the national media most of them live in the total west coast or east coast so they don't really know much of anything <laughs> you know uh you you mentioned that and Players that want to be here, and I found it really interesting. I asked DeMarcus Cousins in the locker room following the game. Uh, he said he got emotional when he was giving the speech following the game, I mean, in, in pregame, and uh, he said he had to hand over the mic pretty quick because he really he started to become overwhelmed. And I asked him if Sacramento was home, and he said, absolutely. And that's what I get from his people, that he doesn't want to go anywhere, that he wants to be in Sacramento forever. Is that, I mean, you've seen it before, but still, you these the younger crowd is different, and they want different things, and it's just, it's kind of refreshing to see someone who is a big-name player now and who still wants to be here. Well, that is one of the remarkable things about DeMarcus, you know. I mean, certainly people a lot of times point out his flaws. I mean, we're all flawed, uh, but he's got a lot of real strengths, uh, you know, loyalty, uh, really commitment to the community, and all, but you know, besides the obvious fact that he's by far the most talented uh, power player in the league uh, by quite a bit now, and I think, I mean, even, I know people can 
point to Anthony Davis or Carl Anthony Towns or whoever they want to, but at the end of the day, uh, DeMarcus has has done more than anybody. And and like I say, the fact that he really does uh, uh, care about his community and the team and the and all uh, uh, that that's you know that's real credit. You know, and watching him on opening night. Uh, first of all, his defense on LaMarcus Aldridge was next level. I've never seen him play that well. And he actually said, I never get to play LaMarcus. And that reminded me that he's right. Uh, When the Kings typically play against Aldridge, uh, Jason Thompson forever guarded him. And, and, you know, Costa Kufis has guarded him. They've They've had other people that guard LaMarcus. But this new identity of the team, not just DeMarcus, but the entire group, seems to be centered around Dave Yeager's you know, grit and grind defensive system. I'm really impressed so far from what I'm seeing. I mean, it's only two games, but I'm really impressed with just the defensive effort and prowess that this team shows, even though they just got together. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, they're making it teams work for their shots. You know, we just haven't seen that for a while. And I mean, even a, a great team like the Spurs had to work for their offense you know they didn't get many easy shots other than you know great individual steals or things by by Kawhi Leonard but uh yeah DeMarcus uh you know I mean that that was kind of has been kind of the last step for him in some ways you know I mean his he's always had the great instincts for the game taking charges and really getting steals and all but I think his individual defense has in these two games of when I've seen just is remarkable. And I, and I take it a step further and I give coach Jaeger some credit uh, for this as well is that, you know, his transition defense, uh, I mean, which was always a weakness in my opinion, because so many times he let things bother him and affected getting back quick enough, but he's sprinting back. He's involved in about every defensive uh, situation. So, uh, you know, I think, it's just it's just outstanding, and I think it may be a little carryover from his Olympic uh, play as well because his body uh, just looks great. When you look at this team, uh, the way I kind of I've compared it, it's it's to a baseball team that looks like they have like one through nine. They've got hitters at every spot, you know, and and that's just not what the Kings have had over the last few years. You know, they may have six or seven deep, but then once you get eight through fifteen. The roster is usually pretty low budget, and this this roster feels like they have 12, 12 legitimate NBA players that can plug and play at any time. Is that refreshing for you, knowing that you know just a few years ago the the Maloofs ran a forty three million dollar payroll, the lowest in the league for consecutive years, and you had guys you know the next year, I think one year there was seven players that were out of the out of the league within a year of of playing for the kings um is it refreshing oh, oh well obviously it is and i mean i i think the uh the depth uh you know i hope is going to be a factor having said that i do like i do like the uh, veteran additions because they for the most part they have been at least role players on playoff teams on several occasions and uh in my mind uh, how do you expect to make the playoffs with nobody who's ever been been in the playoffs so so that's a real step in, in the right direction. Now, having said that, on the negative side, I, I thought the bench won the game in Phoenix and probably lost the game against San Antonio. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that will be a key going forward. I think the bench has got to be a key part of this team going forward to where they at least play equal to the other team's bench on a nightly basis. So, uh, 
in my mind tonight will be a nice test for that. I, I think uh, Minnesota has a solid bench, and the Kings have, have simply got the least holder on there. But uh, there's, in my mind, there's no reason to not expect that because, as you pointed out, you do have the depth there. They're legitimate NBA players, so so there's no reason we shouldn't expect legitimate NBA uh, production out of them. You know, it kind of feels like this team is Darren Collison away from being really good because if you add Collison to the mix, either off the bench or as a starter, it gives you that second guy to run the team with the second unit. So whether Ty Lawson is running up against secondary point guards or Darren Collison is running up against backup point guards, either way, it looks like that may be the cog that's really missing right now in my book because I, I like Garrett Temple I just don't think he's a point guard, and I don't think he can he can run a team. He can bring a ball up, but unless DeMarcus Cousins and Rudy Gay are there running an offensive set with him, it seems like he struggles a bit. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, he's just simply not quick enough at that position, in my opinion. I think he, you know, uh, he's a fill-in-the-gap guy. I mean, Garrett's a heck of a uh, all-around player, can guard three positions and, and can play a little bit. Certainly, his best position is probably the two guard, but can play some three and and some one. But boy, I totally agree with you. I mean, I I, I think in this day and age, point guards got to be able to get in the gaps and penetrate the ball to the paint, things of that nature, in order to create any problems. And I I don't believe Garrett, quite honestly, can do that on, with any uh, level of consistency. So, uh, having said that, you know, with Collison and Ty Lawson, they both can do that, and I like the idea. You know, it's a little bit like San Antonio, where they give you Tony Parker, then give you Patty Mills. I mean, they could just forty-eight minutes of blaster, just mm-hmm. uh, run it up your rear end, and and <laughs> I I think that that's what the Kings can have, and then take it a step further. I think there's there's fifteen twenty minutes a game where if you Coach Yeager is very creative, you can play both those guys together in today's game. I mean, uh, you know, you can play two guards, uh, two small guards. Uh, easy against against quite a few teams, and so I'm waiting to see that because I know for whatever they give up on defense, uh, they're they're going to be, you know, be having some bigger, slower guys uh, at their mercy. I I definitely you bring that up that on the defensive end that there might be an issue with those two, but through two games, Ty Lawson's defense. I talked to him in the locker room; even he was surprised how well he's playing defensively. I mean, he holds Tony Parker to 0-6 from the field. Uh, Bledsoe really didn't get off in Phoenix, and and neither did Patty Mills or uh, or Knight in against the Suns. So he's really doing a nice job defensively. Is this just... I mean, Jaeger is coming in. He's about as close to a legitimate frontline coach as the Kings have had since Rick Adelman left, right? Totally agree. Uh, you know, he he's got a well. He's he's what I've I've always liked about him. I mean, and and studied him a little bit when he was in the so-called minor leagues. But he's a very creative coach, uh, defensively and offensively. And and really, in this league, when you don't have the most talent, you got to find a way to utilize it. I've always said the only thing a coach can do once you have your roster is motivate it on a consistent basis and utilize their talent correctly. And I think that. In Dave Yeager, we have a guy who can do that about as well as anybody, and uh, you know, so so we're going to see a lot of uh, interesting things with uh, uh, Coach Yeager, Coach teams as we go, and and then and then also in fairness, I, I think he's got a great staff. I, I think maybe maybe the best overall staff since uh, uh, since Rick Adelman as well. 
I mean, when you got Brian Gates and Elston Turner, these guys, uh, uh, Coach Thornton, I mean, these guys, these guys have been around, done that. And, uh, you know, and I, I, that's just not lost. You know, there, there's that he's got help to implement uh, his vision. And I think that's extremely important. Yeah, even a guy like Larry Lewis, who is working with young players every single day, he's working so hard. It's really, it's really nice to see a developmental team because this, if if one thing you can look at, the draft picks haven't worked out for the Kings over the last decade, except for Cousins, and if you can blame a lot of that on the actual the Kings themselves, their inability to develop guys like Ben McLemore or Nick Stauskas or Jimmer for debt. Uh, I, I could keep going. Jason Thompson's of the world. Uh, how big is it? Uh, Thomas Robinson forgot about that one. Um, how big is it that, that this entire team looks like they're developing a, a squad on the court, but then behind the scenes, they're also developing three top, you know, three first round picks, one of which came with the 28th pick who looks like he's the best of the three. How how good is it to see sort of this development happening? Well, I, I don't know. I might look at it a little different than you because, truthfully, it's a veteran team. So so the people that are playing are, are veteran guys and have been veteran guys for a number of years. So as far as developing them, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Most of them have been developed. And uh, and so, so there's that. Uh, you know, I think that uh, – their skills are being utilized and they are being worked with. And as far as the young guys, I mean, to be honest, until we see them do something, it, it's just talk. Uh, no, that's true. I, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day is none of them have played. And, and when they have played in preseason, I don't think any of them have played well. So, so, so we've got to wait on that. And, and like I say, I, I think going back to the Thomas Robinsons or Jimmers, whoever the reality was, uh, they weren't very good. <laughs> and and so that that's that and they've been a lot of other franchises they've been with that had so-called development guys and they're where they are for a reason and and conversely then you've had guys like Isaiah Thomas here who was drafted here and and he's a, a major star in the league now may not be playing here but uh so you know talent uh talent develops itself uh, to to a good part i mean you have to have competent people and that's what i'm saying we do have and mm-hmm. if the players themselves the rookies that we have now have the talent to be good players they'll have that opportunity and if they don't they won't that's very very well said okay so jerry i know you got a you got a game tonight i've got a game tonight i don't want to keep you all day uh uh, we got to save. We've got to save your golden pipes for your time with Grant. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we need to save save Grant. That's for sure. I mean, <laughs> mine, will, mine will work in there somewhere. But it's always a pleasure talking to you about basketball, James. All right, Jerry. Do you have any? Do you have any Jerryisms that we we haven't heard yet? That have you have you spouted anything? Because I don't get to listen to the telecast. What, what do you got so far? Is there anything? that you're just really, really excited about that you've been able to... Well, I like I like one thing. I just It just hit me. I, I don't know if the fans like it, but it, it was... Uh, I just happened to say it once. Uh, Aaron uh, Aaron uh, Flalo uh, hit a, a Flalo away jump shot. So I, I was kind of proud of that. Uh, you know, a couple of fans thought it pretty silly, and I said, the fact they think it's silly, that I, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but I thought it was kind of crea- creative. An Aaron a Flalo away jump shot. That's right. I, I loved it. I, I did hear that one, and I thought that that was spot on. I'm still pushing for Night at the Aflalo if he goes off, 
But, but oh, oh, see? not bad, not bad. There we go, there we go. All right, that is the incomparable Jerry Reynolds. Jerry, thanks so much for coming in. Well, you're so welcome. Welcome back to the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. I am James Ham. Joining me, as always, in the talkback section of our podcast, Mr. Aaron Bruski of HoopDashBall.com. A.B., was so skinny skinny is uh i'm still recovering from the awesomeness the awe the shock of the new arena in uh sacramento and opening night it was amazing and and actually i'm really just recovering from the start of the season getting back some sleep trying to figure out what the hell happened the last three weeks the run-up is so crazy so uh i'm glad it's all over i'm glad i got to see the arena i'm still Still tripping out on it. It is just an amazing, amazing place to be. I mean, it's glorious. The, it is, man. I'm sitting there. It was next to what's his name, Jimmy Goldstein or whatever. I still don't know why that guy's so famous, but he goes to all the NBA games and he dresses up and everybody loves him. Every player on the court walks over and says, "What's up to that guy?" And I'm sitting next to Clay Bennett and Canal Merchant. You know, kind of watching them talk, which was kind of interesting. And I just kind of look up to the balcony. I'm like, dang, that's awesome looking. I want to go stand there and just check it out. And that's kind of how my whole night went. The game was going on, and I'd look at something. i go, I want to go over there and check that out. Yeah, I, I think it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And, you know, I, have I told you my Clay Bennett story? My Clay Bennett story, I was in Ella the night that he came into town to uh, to vet the $10 million in corporate sponsorships that Kevin Johnson had said that he had brought in and he's part of the the relocation committee and I went out to Ella with my wife and we were sitting there and on one side of the room was Kevin Johnson uh, and his crew and on the other side of the room was Clay Bennett and at the time Chris Granger and uh and others from the NBA and then they both walked by my table and both of them stopped Kevin Johnson stopped and we had a good conversation because uh, I had known Kevin for a while at that point um and you know he's just he just had a big smile on his face like, yeah, we got this. And then uh, Clay Bennett walked by, and we had a conversation as well, and we talked about Oklahoma and just uh, such a, a southern gentleman, such an interesting man, and a huge, huge man too. He's a big dude um, and just a super, super nice guy uh, who did an amazing thing for a community that no one ever would have done if it wasn't uh, – he was the one guy that somehow could afford – to bring to leave the uh, the nineteenth best television market and take it to the forty eighth best television market and and do it with a smile on his face, knowing that he was doing something for his native Oklahomians. So uh, yeah, interesting cat. Uh, I, I I thought it was an interesting night overall. I, I don't think it's Oklahomians. I think it's Oklahomans. It might be and, Oklahomans. Yeah. And and I will double on that. He's he just you know sitting there talking in the circle of people I was standing with. He seemed genuinely humbled by the moment, and and that was really interesting just to see kind of an owner who's been through a whole sort a whole lot of relocation drama on his own, and just seeing him sit there, he did seem like the moment moved him, and and to see that he was personally invested into it, it goes against the grain of what you hear about him, which is mostly hate and scorn, especially out of Seattle, but even oh, yeah. just the NBA at large. I think most people look at Clay Bennett and, and think, you know, why'd you steal the Sonics? So it was it was an interesting juxtaposition there. But just a, a really wonderful night. 
The facility is awesome. And the team, you know, I'd mentioned this in passing or in during these podcasts about how the new arena would have possibly some impact on this team. And you see it on the court. They they just look a lot better. So I thought it was a really good night overall for everybody involved. Yeah, you know, DeMarcus Cousins took center stage and he went to talk to the, the fans. It was so loud you couldn't even hear him. And then he handed the mic off really fast. And in the locker room afterwards, he he said how emotional he was getting. He was getting, he was overwhelmed by the moment and just the fan reaction and being in the building and actually feeling it you know that that just rawness of the evening and how much this meant to the people around him and i asked him in the locker room uh we actually it was a, it was a really really cool moment i asked him i said is sacramento home for you now and he said absolutely and you could just tell and then he may have backed that up with unless so-and-so runs me out of town <laughs> in classic DeMarcus Cousins uh, fashion. After the, uh, the camera stopped rolling, he threw it out there. Yeah, in case bleep bleep runs me out of town. Uh, it, was, it was such an honest moment, though, because honestly, that is what I continue to hear from everyone in his camp, except for, you know, his agents who don't want to talk, but uh, because they don't want him here in Sacramento, because this isn't a place where he can make uh, a bunch of money on endorsements and everything else. They would love for him to be a, a Los Angeles Laker or New York Nick, a Chicago Bull, uh, name that major media market, and they would love to have DeMarcus Cousins there. Uh, I even, I know that the Dallas Mavericks are going to make like a major push to get DeMarcus oh, over you the next saw years. The, the breadcrumbs yeah. on that a few yeah, weeks ago. They went out and I signed mean... his brother, uh, <laughs> to a training camp deal and, and brought him in. And I don't know, is his brother even playing? Is he going to go down to their, um, their D league squad? I, I don't even know, but I, it's I Jaleel, know. right? Jaleel Cousins. The the D or probably the D the Dallas Mavericks uh, heavy hitting writers all release kind of the same story at, at the, the same, same time, time as yeah. if Mark texted them and said Operation <laughs> Demarcus is a go yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah it's great. almost like a uh, a barbershop quartet and Mark Cuban like blew the C note like all right one two three you know that's that's what it felt like it was like whoa look at that everyone's got the demarcus cousins the chase for demarcus in uh in 2018 and i to be honest with you the vibe around the team is really good right now and that's you know you see rudy gay and and dave yeager you know sharing some back slapping laughs every time i see them on camera together and it's just, I, I kind of wonder, yeah, this thing could spin south any number of ways. Let's see how they lose three games in a row was one, one thing I heard on Media Row. But I don't know, man. I, I, I feel 44 wins is is kind of low almost. <laughs> I don't want to jinx it or anything just for the sake of my prediction. But I think if this team has any sort of success, this is a real pivot point for them. You've got some humbling moments for those in ownership and, and even just in the organization that, you know, I think they realize the mistakes they've made. They've got a little bit of distance between the mistakes that they've made. And if they are able to get some wins underneath their belt, you got this new arena. The team's style is just better. It's it's a better defense. It's a better offensive system. 
And I think they can build off of that and having a separation between old, old, old arena and new arena. It, for whatever reason, you know, call it hokey or whatever. I think that actually matters. You know, I saw a moment when uh, Rudy Gay went to the hole and got an and one. It was a big and one in a big moment. And DeMarcus Cousins came walking up to him, and they they did like a low five, like really hard, and then chest bumped really hard. And I was like, look at that. It was team unity. It was it was two dudes who know how much they mean to their team and really brought it against the Spurs. So, all right, so let's get to the basketball because we, we've got a bunch to cover here as far as what's going on. And, you know, I, I guess this is as good as time of, as good a time as any uh, to to mention our sponsor, Aaron. We're going to we're we're covered this year by Max Muscle. Max Muscle is bringing the CSN Kings Insider podcast, so we're super excited about that. And you're going to hear that all season long on the telecast and and on the podcast. But super excited to have a partner in crime for the podcast. But uh, this team really does look like they are better. They are. They have an identity already two games in, and I know it's a small sample size, and we don't want to jump all over too many things too quickly, but there are certain things that we're already seeing. Number one, the pace. The Kings are 27th in the league in pace at 94.6. Hallelujah. My God. Yeah, hallelujah. Uh, They are defensive rating. They're 103.6, which puts them at 11 out of 30. Again, we're talking about a very small sample size, but we're also talking about a high-octane Phoenix Suns team that they manhandled. And then, realistically, in my opinion, I know people are going to go, wait, what? Uh, The San Antonio Spurs, game two of the NBA season, they're the best team in the NBA. And I say that because, number one, they won 67 games last year. Number two, they've won, they've made it to the, the, the playoffs in 36 of 40 years in their time in the league they're the most storied franchise in the league outside of maybe the boston celtics uh but in this generation they are the bees knees they are the gold standard of M- nba and when you get a team like this early in a season that isn't trying to figure out how to how to stick kevin durant into their lineup and how to deal with the loss of of uh andrew bogut and Harrison Barnes and uh, all of the other players, you know, Maurice Spites and uh, Barbosa, all these guys that the Golden State Warriors lost. I honestly believe in game two of the season that the Spurs are so ready to be the best team in the league. Now, by the end of the season, I expect the Golden State Warriors, the Cleveland Cavaliers to have surpassed them as far as the way that they're playing at that point and to be like the number one ranked team. But right now, I think the Spurs are the best team in the league. And you go toe-to-toe with them. You hold a, a lead at half. Uh, you fall apart a little bit in the in the third quarter. You hang tough and tie it in the fourth. And then you falter down the stretch as they methodically do what the Spurs do. I was impressed. Yeah, I mean, it was really good uh, basketball for that first half especially. And you, what you notice with the Kings is they've got players filling the gaps. Garrett Temple, I, I know I talk about him a lot, but he is a guy that you're going to want on the court all the time. He is, he's just a pleasure to watch defensively, the way he gets over screens, under screens, recovering from stuff. It's just really nice to watch. I, uh, I'm going to tell you, you love Garrett Temple on the floor at all times. I don't want to see him play point guard ever again, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't think... 
I don't think he can run this team at all. I think the second that you take Ty Lawson on the floor, off the floor, for me right now, I'm running Ty Lawson out there 42 minutes a game and and trying to get through the first eight games because I don't think Garrett Temple, as soon as he comes on the floor, the offense comes to a screeching halt unless he's somehow hitting 18-foot mid-range jumpers, which, again, is the worst shot in basketball. So go ahead. Uh, you have your opinion on Garrett Temple. I have my opinion. on. I, I want to see Garrett Temple on the floor. I like him on the floor. I do not like him at the point guard position. I want him at the I two. Just I want him at ask, the three. What are you guys asking him to do? Like, are we trying to make him, you know, a pick and roll stud where he's generating offense? He and, can't and make that. anyone better on the offensive end. He's not supposed to. That's not his job. That's not his role. It, it kind of makes me wonder what people expect out of their point guard. You know, if he to was facilitate. Doing- yeah, if he was doing that, he'd be making all-star money because he's a great defender. And you, when when he's on the floor, the Kings really ought to be looking at running the offense through somebody else. They ought to be looking at running most of it through DeMarcus Cousins in the post. And I don't think that they're there quite yet with the way that they want to run things. And so a lot of times he has to handle the ball and it's not looking so great. But I don't think it's like a bad idea to have him on the floor at the point guard position. If you've got the surrounding pieces, if you have Rudy Gay and Demarcus cousins on the floor, even Aaron Aflalo, you know, when you can run through the post with these guys, I think it's, it's viable to have him at that position. Am I calling for him to play 35 minutes a night? No, but I think he should get 25 minutes a night. No problem because you see it on the floor. As far as the defense goes, when you have him and Matt Barnes on the floor and, and even Aaron Aflalo, was looking pretty good with his defense the other night as far as the length that they bring, the activity that they're bringing. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it gives the Kings a different look, one they didn't have last year, and that could be systems. It, it could very well be systems, but that's something that they have not had. And it makes DeMarcus Cousins, you know, he's never going to run up and down the court as fast as anybody wants. He's just a big guy. But and, when— you know, when you go to a lineup that is Tolliver, Ben McLemore, Matt Barnes, Anthony Tolliver, uh, Willie Cauley Stein, you're done. You had two, to- two Tollivers in there. Can't have you can't have two. Oh, Tolliver. Tolliver. I'm sorry, Barnes. Barnes, Tolliver at the guard at the forward spots. Uh, McLemore and and uh, Temple in the backcourt, and Willie Cauley Stein. You have no one on that I would roster. Not. They they can't oh, create he- offense. I would not go to that. And I will also throw this out there. And Ty Lawson's playing really well, I might add. He is. But however, well. let me give a big however here, is however. he is not pulling the trigger on open shots. He passed up a wide open three in crunch time or the moment of time that it was crunch time in the last game. And he's still hesitant. And for whatever reason, he talked about it in, in a media day that he's not willing to take the open three. I don't know why that is. You know, sometimes people get a little gun shy for whatever reason. He's still in that zone. And what it does when he's running offense, he's able to maintain his handle just fine. But the Kings still have a lot of possessions where they're not getting into something productive right away. And and that's I spoke to him last night about that exact thing. And he explained to me why he's struggling in the offense. So so first of all, I mean, we're going to discuss Ty Lawson a lot today. Just because I, I personally think he's playing such phenomenal basketball that it's it's ridiculous. He's yet to have a breakout offensive game, but coming into to, to today's games, I think he leads the league in assists at eight a game, which isn't like tremendous, but it's good enough to lead the league. Um, but his defensive prowess 
has been like off the charts like holy cow so anyway i I talked to ty lawson about this like what's the deal how come you're struggling on the offensive end he's like because look i have always played in an open system and i'm used to getting by my guy i can get by my guy but when i go to attack the rim from the top of the key and i get my by my guy but then demarcus and costa are standing there Mm -hmm. running a high post a double high post He's like, all of a sudden, there's two more dudes standing there. He's like, so I haven't figured out yet the the whole offense, and I also haven't figured out how to get past the second layer. Because if I can get past that second layer, then it's it's like a free run to the basket. But for right now, he's like, I'm still trying to work it out. And I said, well, have you watched Mike Connolly Jr.? And he goes, yes, I have started watching a lot of film of Mike Connolly Jr., and the way he scores is on a bunch of pick and rolls and a bunch of handoffs. So they'll go to the high post, he'll run through, and they'll hand it back to him and let him break down the offense coming at almost like a running back cutting through the middle. And they're out of the key at that point, and that's why it, that's why it works. And you've seen that with him. You've seen throughout not just these two regular seasons games, but in the preseason, he is – getting snuffed out and his handle's so good that he's able to, to retreat and reset and, and get something at least decent out of it. Um, but regardless, whatever you're going to say, he is holding it down and he's given them another dimension. And when Darren Collison gets back, now you've taken this playmaking issue and really taken a big bite at the apple with it. You, 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 you are absolutely right. Nobody should think that Garrick Tem- Temple should be a playmaking point guard. And it, it makes you have to do things on the offense that you wouldn't normally do, like run the offense through the post. Um, and I don't think they're going to be doing that long term. So that's why I think you're not seeing a lot of it. And that's why I think you do see both players kind of standing out at the top, surveying, trying to figure out where they're going to get their their offense from and not really um, getting a lot out of it in those particular situations. So once you do add Darren Calls into the mix and Ty figures that out, they figure out how to score within this offense. I think the point guard position will be addressed for the Kings. I think so too. Uh, and I and also, that's something was a huge question mark for them going into this year. It was, but I also, I want to see Ty Lawson against second team point guards. That's what I want to see. Cause right now he's holding his own and playing really well against first team point guards. This isn't his style of basketball at all. He's a running gun guy. And to see him hold up against Tony Parker, Tony Parker went O of six from the field they brought in Patty Mills, who's one of the quickest guards in the league. He goes two of seven. Those guys combined for 10 points. A lot of that was Ty Lawson. He's collapsing. He's getting back to his guys. He's staying with them. So phenomenally, it's just shocking. And then when you watch what he did against Phoenix, he had a very similar night. I mean, he held Eric Bledsoe to just to 16 points. But again, Bledsoe is a guy who's who's so fast and so strong. And to hold him to 16 points on 5 of 11 shooting, he averaged over 20 a game last season. That's their primary scoring option. And then they came in with Brandon Knight off the bench. Brandon Knight goes 1 of 8 from the field. Scores 7 points, but 1 of 8 from the field. So Ty Lawson is already showing me that he can play defense at an at a spectacular level. And I, again, I know it's a small sample size, but what you're looking at is a really good four guards he's gone up against and he's held up and his offense hasn't come yet, but he's trying to set up other people. He's trying to find his groove. I asked him about his defense in the locker room and he literally, he laughed. He goes, honestly, I'm a little surprised too. 
I'm a little surprised that I'm well, able to do this because it's it's scheme, but it's also it's getting the direction to be a and being told you will be a good defender or you won't play. And I think it's spectacular. I've the one thing that I've been seeing with this team that I think just really just it's bigger than anything else. They going back to last year, you'd look at them and say, "What in God's green earth is this team doing? I've never seen anything this backwards in all my time of watching basketball. And they are this year doing all sorts of stuff correctly. Rotations, namely, on defense. They're in the right ballpark with their rotations almost all the time, it feels like, in these two games. And, um, you know, offensively, everything is complimentary. It's, it's hard to describe it in specifics in a podcast when we don't don't have a lot of time to go through the X's and O's. We don't have a whiteboard to show them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah exactly. But I could just sum it up as when I'm watching them play, I'm in general agreement with what they're doing. And that's just a huge change for these guys. So um, I, I credit it to getting, you know, Matt Barnes, Aaron Aflalo, who, again, I was never really high on as a pickup, liked the risk quotient, the one-year deal essentially. But the way that they interact with this particular team, it plugs the the hole, so to speak, in the basketball IQ, where they probably didn't know where to go without those two guys quite as well. And now all the rotations are nice and smooth. So I just think that, that we're going to be in for an interesting season of Kings ball. They're not going to scare anybody. They're not going to knock on a four seed or a five seed. If they do anything, it'll be an eight seed. And that would be their ceiling, I think. But uh, it, it's definitely intriguing just to see night and day. Yeah, yeah. And what they do is they bring a – they have a personality already. They – I compare them – again, I compare them to a Major League Baseball lineup where you have one through nine who are all legitimate Major League Baseball hitters. And that's that's what I've noticed. Like, I again, the A's a couple of years ago – they weren't. They made the playoffs. They they came out of nowhere, and people are like, "How is this team this good?" But when you look at you know Coco Crisp, and then John Jaso, and then Jed Lowry, and then uh, Josh Donaldson, and then Jonas Cespedes, and, and you've got to the five hole, and and you already know that every single guy is going to take four to six pitches. Every single guy is going to fight every single at bat. They're going to give you an honest look. Pit, pitchers are going to have to work. And then you get through six through nine, and they're the same. They're you know every guy in that lineup is coming in and giving you something. That's really how I look at the Kings. And you know, last year I know a lot of people love Seth Curry. Uh, I don't, unfortunately, while he's a really nice guy, I don't think anyone in Sacramento appreciated James Anderson at all. Uh, but Quincy AC, you know, these are guys that were on the roster, and for most teams, those guys are going to be a 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th man on the roster. And the Kings have players who are seasoned veterans that can give you honest minutes. If they go out there and play 15 minutes like half of these guys are playing, they're going to give you a really, really honest 15 minutes. And the two guys that you don't know about right now in that stretch are, of course, Willie Cauley-Stein and Ben McLemore, the two young guys that the Kings were actually playing and they're hit and miss on every night, although it seems like Ben McLemore has found his groove like crazy. Um, and the mid-range jumpers, I, I don't even know what to say about, you know, again, <laughs> if you go from George Carl's 
you know, dribble drive motion offense where it's nothing but layups and three pointers. And now you get to uh, Garrett Temple knocking down, you know, two straight and then Ben Malcolmore three straight mid range jumpers from the top of the key, which statistically speaking are some of the worst shots in basketball, but you're hitting them. Um, it's, it's different, but I really do feel like this team is so incredibly deep and talented with actual NBA players. Yeah, this this uh, death of the mid-range shot thing, it just really frustrates me because anybody who's played even just a small amount of basketball in their life knows that the whole game is about left, right, forward, back. Like if you go left and they go left, and if you could go right and then you can get around them, and if you can stop and pull, all that stuff, it matters, and it doesn't just stop or cease to exist when you're at the mid-range spot on the floor. It'd be like a pitcher saying, oh, I'm just going to stop throwing the curveball because it only you know, does well X percent of the time. you got to have a mid-range jumper in your arsenal. You've got to be able to keep the defenses honest, if anything, just to change things up on teams. And so, yeah, seeing that out of them is nice. And, um, I, I, yeah, I, th- I think with – where they're going going forward, there's still six more games here that they've got to come out of this, I think, four and four to feel pretty good about their their situation. Um, the West is still tough. There's going to be a lot of news stories, you know, kind of dogging the Kings. I think there's a lot of teams that would like to get their hands on a DeMarcus Cousins. Mm-hmm. And again, this comes back, back down to things are good now. What happens when you hit your first three-game losing streak? And then where is the leadership on the team? And fortunately for them, I think it's in a pretty decent place. I say that with a little hesitation because, you know, things have never been really locked down in that area over the last five years. But I don't know. I, I think when you know the chronology of how things have happened in Kingsland, and that's a tough story to follow. But when you know that stuff and you kind of see how certain things have expired in that story, I think that there's actually better leadership in place than people would give it credit for. Yeah, I really do like their leadership. And then I'm also going to point out, too, I know the Kings, they they ran through a 23-win Phoenix Suns team. But first of all, Phoenix lost a lot of games because Bledsoe and uh, Brandon and I both missed a a tremendous portion of the season. TJ Warren got hurt. He missed a bunch of time. Um, So so there there were some reasons, not excuses, but actual reasons why the Phoenix Suns weren't more like a 29-30 win team. Um, I'm not saying that they're good and I'm not saying that, you know, the Kings, um, shouldn't have just taken a whoop and stick to them because they did. Uh, but when you really look at the way the Kings schedule lays out, they play one of the worst in the West and then they play who I consider one of the best in the West. And I think everyone else considers, and, and I know the Kings got done with that first game. The second game, they're like, well, this is really a measuring stick for us against San Antonio. And I don't think it is. San Antonio is not a measuring stick. Maybe in game 60, San Antonio is a measuring stick. If you're still fighting it out and you're fighting for a playoff spot and you're you're a, a 42-win team looking to, to push to get to 50 and you, you think, oh, you know, we've got something here, um, that's when I think San Antonio becomes, becomes a measuring stick. The real measuring stick to me is Saturday's game against the Minnesota Timberwolves because – that's a team that's sort of in a similar place, although they're younger than the Kings. They're in a place where they're kind of sitting there from anywhere between 7 and 12 in the Western Conference, and they have so much talent. And the Kings, they've given the Kings fits because of their length. They absolutely smoked the Kings last year. They, they beat them up a couple of times. 
And so this is a real measuring stick here. It's not the worst team, and it's not the best team. It's a team that's around your playing style, you know, around your your place in the world right now. And there's a group of teams like this, you know. I, I think Houston still fits into that. I think the Pelicans fit into that because they have Anthony Davis, and much like the Kings, who have Demarcus Cousins. When you have an elite big, I think you're you're in any conversation. I think the Utah Jazz are in that that position. But really, I think the Kings have been waiting for the right game to to see a measuring stick. And this is one of the first ones that I think you go in and you go, okay, how do we do against a team like this? How do we do against teams in the Eastern Conference that like the Milwaukee's and the the Washingtons that are around the same playing style? And, and, I mean, the, the same playing ability. And if you can go 600 against those teams and you can go 400 against you know, the upper echelons, and you can go 80% against the lower end teams, then all of a sudden you are looking at a 40 to 50 win team, not a 30 to 40 win team. Yeah. And, you know, looking at the schedule, this Minnesota game is pivotal for a couple reasons. One is it's right at the um, beginning of a road trip. So they're going to play at home against Minnesota, but then they go on the road for five games after that. Setting the tone at one and two versus two and one, I think is going to be a big, big uh, mind change for them. Uh, one and two might be, here we go again. Two and one might be, hey, we're on to something here. And Atlanta is a well-coached team, but their talent, I don't think, is on par with the Kings. And and it's uh, people might scoff at that statement, but you look at Dwight Howard, he can't play with DeMarcus Cousins anymore. They're, the, the two are not comparable at this point in time. Paul Millsap is pretty much... Uh, head over, uh, head and shoulders above anybody else in his uh, position class. But then once you go through the rest of the lineup, the Kings have advantages everywhere else. I think because of the way that the Hawks play and their experience with Coach Budenholzer, they're, they're a veteran team. I think that they're the better team. So you go into this Hawks game one and two, you lose to them. Now you're one and three. Maybe things start to tip a little bit at that point in time. But if you can go into that game two and one and you've also got a fighting shot against the Hawks, I, I believe, then you're really looking at a swing point there. Following that, you have the Heat, which is a winnable game. They should win that game. Though Miami, I like them. I just don't think that they have anything that can deal with a DeMarcus Cousins. Like, I mean, Hassan Whiteside, yes, but he will get in foul trouble very quickly. And everybody after that's just, you know a big one of those cartoon turkeys to him and yeah. then our orlando's a mess they might be the one of the worst teams in basketball right now milwaukee has Giannis and jabari and not much going after that so they should head and they should win those three games i mean realistically it should be an expectation that they win those three games those are three teams that they can beat you could be looking at six and one legitimately after or pardon me not six and one six and two if they lose to atlanta legitimately you know coming out of those i might be getting that math wrong seven seven games so five and two going into their matchup with toronto in toronto which they should lose toronto should outclass them and teams playing north of the border i'm sure that's a oh they don't have the 10 the old 10 a.m start it's a 6 p.m start in toronto teams lose that game all the time so anyway five and two heading into that game would just be tremendous you'd be coming into the post collison suspension at five and three there would be buzz about the Kings at that point. But then again, if they lose the Minnesota game, they start one and two. They could go one and three. 
then they might be scratching and clawing to come back at 500. But still, nobody really thought they'd go 500 without Darren Collison. Anyway, they didn't know what they had in Ty Lawson. This Ty Lawson being good thing is is a really good development for the Kings. But I, I like their chances. I like my bet. I kind of wish I'd gone back up to 47. Yeah, I, I'm not going there yet. But again, I think the T-Wolves, the Heat, the Magic, the Bucks, the Pelicans, those five teams in the first 10 games, and then you throw in against a game like the Lakers, you throw in a game like the Suns, those five games in the middle, though, again, Minnesota, the Heat, the Magic, the Bucks, and the Pelicans. So through the first 10 games, you play five teams that are sort of in your stratosphere. And I think those are the five games that will determine really where this team is going. Like how, again, you get to the end of 10 games, where are they at at the end of 10 games? I think realistically you have two cupcakes on that schedule. So you at least got two. You got the Lakers and and you got the Suns. So you're at least two and eight. So now let me see how you go against similar competition. And that's where I think that, that the Kings can make their money. They can make their money in th- that middle section, and then you go to the second 10 games, and you hope that you've, you've got uh, enough in- sort of momentum building that, you know, when you face when you face the, the Blazers, the Spurs, the Clippers, the Raptors, the Thunder, and the Rockets in, in consecutive games, that y- you have enough to get, you know, to go two and three or to go one and four, and then come back at the back end of that second 10 games, pound the Nets, beat the Wizards, beat the 76ers, and and fight really hard with the Celtics. And so maybe, again, that second 10 games, you go 5-5, and you go 6-4, and and now you've got momentum building through the first 20 games, and who knows where this thing goes. And so I'm I'm intrigued. I'm seeing that schedule through November, and it does. It's not that daunting. I mean, Demarcus always plays well against Anthony Davis. That's coming out of the Toronto game against New Orleans. Los Angeles isn't that good. We know that. San Antonio, they'll get them at home again. Uh, you can count that a loss. You could probably count the Clippers as a loss. You could probably count that that game against Toronto as a loss. So they lose those three. But Oklahoma City, they actually match up decently with. Uh, they're not the team they obviously once were. Uh, Houston is terrible. That's a terrible basketball team. <laughs> the, the Nets are not good. They're, uh, Washington... they're, the, they're the worst team, probably. Not only the worst team, but the Nets, their future well, they is... Just, and they just won tonight um, <sighs> against the Pacers. But the the Wizards are already struggling. They're, they're not playing well. The Sixers are better, but they're still the Sixers. That ends November. So, yeah, you had that stretch of three games against the Spurs, the, the Clippers, and, and the Raptors. And assuming they went into you know, let's say four and four coming out of those first eight games. And then you could take three losses with the, those three teams there. Those all are the all rest at home, them, though. They're all at home. You might be able to squeak out. I, I'm just saying there's a lot of winnable games in that. If, if they're over 500 coming out of November, I don't want anybody to be shocked. I like this idea that the Kings are terrible and that if they're over 500, this is just like this one in a hundred bet. It's mind boggling to me. But I mean, if they if they come out of November, and they're like 12 and 8 or, or, or 11 and 9, you know, don't be surprised. Yeah, I agree. And, and again, I mean, we're not going to go through the entire schedule like this, but you look at uh, the games <laughs> 20 through 30, you got the Knicks, 
the Mavericks, the Knicks, the Jazz, the Lakers, the Rockets, the Grizzlies. I wasn't going to go there, but it looks really enticing. The Blazers, the Jazz. I mean, again, you have to beat teams like the Jazz. You have to. No, no, no. The Jazz are really good. Well, no, but they'll they'll lose that game. You have to compete with teams like the Jazz because they're not out of the out of the realm of possibility here. You you got the Jazz for two games. You got the Rockets. You got the Grizzlies. Those are four games that. If you can go to if you can go five hundred through that, and then you can beat the Knicks twice, and you can you know beat up on Dallas at least once, and you can you know compete with the Blazers, you get a Lakers team that uh, still. I mean, I, again, I think you can start to see a pattern if you look at the schedule, but we have to see more than just two games to start making determinations. I think really this uh, five games on the road, it, it is brutal. I mean, we're talking about like. You know they should beat the Heat, but they're they have a a Hawks game on on Halloween followed by a back to back the next day against the Heat. They have a, a day between before they play the Magic, but then they have a back to back Saturday night, Sunday in Milwaukee and Toronto. Um, so you know the schedule isn't isn't super friendly, but that's the NBA. You have to go in and you have to fight hard and you have to play the games and you have to do your best to. Uh, to keep your composure, and from what I'm seeing so far, Jaeger's teams are prepared to give you as close to 48 minutes as we've seen in a long time from, from a Kings team. And I think that Darren Collison's return will completely change the complexity of this team. It gives you that big-time third scorer that you can rely on, and I think it will release Lawson He'll have eight games to really get his feet wet, to really get his game going. And then whether he stays as a starter or or Collison moves into the starting role, it gives you just it gives you two really, really nice options at that point guard position. Or right now I think that is the weakest spot on this team once you get past uh, once you get past Lawson's minutes. So we can dis- agree to disagree on that, Mr. Bruski, but that I mean, that's wait. What are we disagreeing on again? Again, the the point guard position after Lawson. That's that's the spot that I still think is hurting them because that second unit is not being uh, it's not being driven. It's I, it's I'm not fine being directed. with it though because they're I, like I can see why Jaeger would say it's eight games. Let's not go through a bunch of different staggers because basically to get the problem of Temple not having enough playmakers around him to get that figured out you have to stagger your starters. Yep. And I can see him saying, you know what? It's just eight games. Let's just deal with it. You know, let's not put, I mean, we're changing enough as is. Let's just keep it consistent. And you know what? It's not as bad as everybody's saying it is. We'll just roll with it. And and that's why I think you're seeing that on both sides, you know, Lawson and, and uh, Temple, they're going to run their stuff. They're not going to change their system for these eight games. And part of that is going to require Ty Lawson to figure out how to work, you know, in the dribble handoff game and things like that. And then with with Temple, it's the same thing. He's got to figure out how to score within the, the system that he's in, and uh, they're going to live with it. Yeah, uh, you have no choice. I mean, they're not making any roster moves. This is a team they're gonna they're gonna go with as long as they can, and then we'll kind of figure out what happens with Rudy Gay as the season develops. I think uh, a couple of things we'll touch on before we get out of here. Um, number one, the Rudy Gay situation. We talked about it before, but how do you replace Rudy Gay if he's not there anymore? And I, it looks tougher and tougher by the minute. He is such an offensive uh, talent that 
you really you need that second guy with Cousins, and I fully think that the Kings need to either get another Rudy Gay in return or they need to figure out how to work things out with Rudy right now and just so he can last the season and then go from there and figure out what you can do. Um, number two, I think the other thing I'll bring up before we skedaddle, um, Omri Caspi, I, I warned you people, you people, I warned you, <laughs> I warned you that I was fearing that Omri Caspi was the odd man out. He played nine games in game one. He played zero, uh, nine minutes in game one. He played zero minutes in game two. And, uh, he's, uh, that's not, that doesn't feel good to anyone, um, but I think people are going to be clamoring for him soon because I don't think, number one, that Anthony Tolliver has played very well. Uh, and I don't know that I can get behind Matt Barnes playing 28 minutes tonight. I, I think Matt Barnes does a lot, but you saw him in game one where he, he had 14 points and seven rebounds. And then in game two, I thought he was very, very ineffective. I thought that Anthony Tolliver was very ineffective in the second night of a back-to-back. I don't think either one of them really stood out. And I also think that the Spurs went big. And David Lee and Dwayne Dedman absolutely schooled the Kings' front line off the bench. So, I mean, when I see Mac Barnes go 1-for-4 in 27 minutes and Anthony Tolliver go 0 for 2 in 15 minutes, um, that's not going to fly. You know, I, I think that Omri Caspi brings an element that this team is already missing. And against the Spurs, you try to match up against David Lee. I would have chosen to not try to match up against David Lee, and I would have chosen to go with uh, with Omri Caspi and force Popovich to match up against Caspi's speed and three-point shooting because I know that David Lee does not like going out away from the paint and guarding. So, uh, yeah, I think there's still room for some change there. Yeah, you know, Jaeger did say there was going to be a lot of room to question him, and that's because of the excess pieces and some of the similarity in the pieces. And I'll, I'll say this. First of all, I thought Barnes was okay. Uh, I think what he does simply by standing in the right places on the floor, I mean, it's really as simple as that in certain cases, I think is really understated. And it's why he gets playing time year after year after year into his whatever year on in the league after uh, traveling to so many teams. But Jaeger has ultimate confidence in him. And I think when things were going well, I think he said, you know what, let's just roll with it. And with Omri, he is a bit of a different player for for Jaeger, at least in terms of this system and how it how it works and how Omri likes to play. But Omri is a professional, and he's going to step in, and he'll have his moments this year. He will be in the rotation. He will be a key cog at some point. Injuries strike every team, and it, it, it will take a little bit for him to find his place within this rotation and, and with the squad, and then he'll get Jaeger's confidence because that's the type of player that he is. So I don't worry about Omri. I know a lot of people out there are clamoring for him, but uh, I just think it's a matter of time, not if, but when. Yeah, and the other thing, again, I'll, I'll point out that Ben McLemore really, really came out, and he's been hitting his shots. Uh, he's shooting something like 54.5%, and he's barely playing. I mean, he, even against the Spurs, he only played 10 minutes, and he only played 10 minutes because... Kawhi Leonard just ran up and treated him like a, a three-year-old, like grabbing his ice cream cone and running down the court and scoring and ones on him. Um, uh, you couldn't have him in the game in the second half, but because because Popovich 
specifically switched and started using Kawhi. I mean, I guess it's a sign of respect when Kawhi Leonard moves out and starts guarding Ben McLemore because he came in hot in the first half. Uh, it's, but as soon as he came in, he had, I think he had, uh, he had 10 points in like two minutes or seven points in two minutes. And then Popovich made the switch and, and put Kawhi Leonard on him then. Then in the second half, he when they tried to come back to McLemore, he instantly switched. That's a point where someone else has to step up and when you're Popovich and you look at a team that cannot create at all on their second unit and you have the luxury of using Kawhi Leonard on Ben McLemore, then that shows you not how good Kawhi is, but it really shows you how weak the really the Popovich thought of the Kings' second unit offensively. And so they're going to need to find someone to score in that second unit. It might be, it might be Darren Collison. It might be a staggered lineup where we start seeing other guys playing here and there it could be you know that they have to reinsert someone into the starting lineup that that probably they would choose not to start because they need more offense from a position um, but I, I think you know this is early in the season you're going to see one thing and then as the season goes on and we see this this team gel and chemistry build you're going to start seeing tweaks from Jaeger I could see a flalo moving to the second unit because he, he likes to score, and, and they could sell him as a veteran player who knows it's not quite as important to start as everybody makes it out to be to come off the bench if Ben starts playing well, that is. And um, Ben, the thing with Ben is having the team play well around him is as important for him as any other player in the league as far as I'm concerned because he's had so much trouble seeing the game and feeling the game. If the game feels good around him, he's going to be more apt to look like he did the other night where it was just a lot of shots within the flow of the offense. And when he's doing that, he starts to look like that lottery pick that everybody thought he could be long way to go, obviously. But um, I could see that happening because you're right. That second unit will, will need a score. And I think you'll start to see staggering once the system is in place. And once Darren Collison has returned, I would start to see, I would bet it you start to see staggering at like the 15 to 20 game mark. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. All right, so Aaron, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, we we got to wrap this thing up. Yeah, um, it was really awesome to see a lot of people connected with the Kings. You know, I saw uh, folks like Scott Moak. Um, I didn't. I saw Canal Merchant, uh, Benny Aziz. Who else did I see? Um, media folks that I thought were really critical in keeping the team. Uh, I saw Blake Ellington of Here We Stay. I saw the Crown Downtown guys. I saw um, Deuce and Morgan. And I didn't get to see Jay Ross. Uh, those three in particular were awesome. I would always get interviewed by those guys. And I just thought that they had a real good pulse on on um, Sacramento and really just were a good voice for the uh, the city to have. And yeah, it was just really good to see all those folks that were connected with that movement. It's rare you see a movement as organic as that. And, um, you know, I said it on Twitter, a lot of these things needed to go perfectly for the Kings to stay in Sacramento. And everybody stepped up, and usually somebody slips, and it didn't happen in this case. So, um, you know, bravo, Sacramento, for your moment. There we go. Yeah, and if, if I were going to throw a couple of shout-outs, uh, the Here We Stay guys, the original Here We Stay guys, um, Blake, Tom, uh, Tom Ziller from Sacktown Royalty, uh, Akis, Ed Montez uh, was pivotal, uh, Nancy and Norm Daly did some really nice things, Kevin Fippen. Uh, that group was was really stellar in, in their work. Uh, again, shout out to Crown Downtown, and uh, I even you know 
Crown Downtown lost one of their one of their uh, their soldiers in this. You know, he they had one of their uh, their family members pass away, and so shout out to Rob. I know he didn't get anything thrown his way, uh, but uh, shout out there. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a brilliant night. I, I thought that this is this is Kings basketball in, in 2016-17. This is a new generation of Kings basketball, and you hope that the team gets on board with all the magic that's happening around it. Uh, lastly, I. I hope everyone liked the CSN set. We are right in the mix. We're right in the middle of everybody. You can come by and see us right inside the glass doors. Uh, Jim Cozumore leading the way, although he did walk right in front of one of my live shots. I don't know if you saw that, Aaron. Um, He just literally wandered in while I was doing a live hit for one of the other CSN shows. And then, like, someone grabbed him, like, hey, dude, you're standing right in front of the camera. (laughs) <laughs> and then he turned like <laughs> facing the camera. Uh, but uh, shout out to Cozumore and Doug Christie. Uh, it is going to be a phenomenal pregame show this season, right in the heart of all the fans as you're walking in. So I hope Kings fans like that. Drop by and see us. Um, I don't know. Anything else, Aaron? No, that's it. Oh, John Santiago. How could I miss? I saw oh, yeah, John. John, and John is he back. He told me some stories about he was teaching kids English in Lithuania. Yeah, I mean, that's just awesome. It was great to see him and just so many other people. It, it was a fun night. And uh, yeah, it's going to be something else. That arena, I understand why Jim walked in front of it. He's probably looking at something else and just wandered into something. He, he's just, uh, he was in his own world. He was in, he was in cozy world. So, all right. So that's going to do it for this edition of the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. I think this is episode 57. Uh, again, special thanks to Max Muscle. Uh, our new sponsor it's going to be a very good season of csn kings insider podcast we hope to have you on board listening every week give us some feedback give us some uh some likes i don't know some stars whatever you do on itunes and uh we'll be back next week so for aaron bruski i am james ham thanks for tuning in to the csn kings insider podcast <laughs>